Well, good morning, South Holly. It's great to be with you. I'm excited to jump into God's Word. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to pull that out. We are still in the book of James. We're turning the page and going into the final chapter of this book that we've been in for 16 weeks, this being the 17th week that we've gone verse by verse through this book. And what we're seeing here is that James continues to show us the mountaintop. He continues to bring that down into the mundane. He continues to speak the poetry into our lives and then reveal that plumbing. And really what we're saying is James has been meddling in our daily lives. He's been speaking truth in such a way that it's starting to impact all of our lives. And as I hear from small group leaders and the men's group on Wednesday morning, everybody seems to be impacted in different ways because of what James is teaching us and what he's showing us. And it's not just this theological idea, but it gets down to the practical day to day, day in, day out of our lives. And he's going to do that for us once again here this morning. Last week, we looked at this idea that we shouldn't plan anything without our king. That in our this and in that, we should invite God in to every area of our life. Small things like our money and our calendars how we live our lives. And as we turn the page, James seems to have this shift that he's going to kind of throw in the mix here. And all of a sudden, the focus of who he's been talking to changes for a couple of verses. And we're going to look at that here this morning. So hopefully you have had time to turn to James chapter 5. And we're going to be going through verses 1 through 6. I have titled this sermon, Woe to the Wickedly Wealthy or WWW for short. Verse 1, chapter 5, the book of James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, we recognize you as our King and our Lord. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity that we continue to have to gather together. Father, we're thankful that you have just addressed each and every one of us in this room with your word. Father, we're thankful that you speak to us and that you speak so clearly in your written word. Father, my prayer for all of us is that we don't tune out over the next few minutes as we gather around your word, but that we continually and constantly focus our mind back on you, your son, your word, and allow your truth to impact our lives. Because as James has continued to say over and over again, Father, we are not called here to be just hearers of your word, but that we should put it into practice we should do the next right thing that we know is right to do. We should be doers of your word. So, Father, help each and every one of us to do this here this morning. If you would, take a moment and just pray silently to yourself. And ask our King, our Lord, 
our God, our Father, to speak to you, to your heart, in such a way that it changes everything in your life. Take a moment and just pray silently to yourself. Invite God's Spirit, His Word, to invigorate your life. And if you would, as always, pray for me that God would continue to use me as a tool in his hands as we recognize him as our true teacher. Abba. Father. Open up our ears. Not just our physical ears, but our ears that can hear your word, your spirit, your soft voice speaking to us. Open our hearts here this morning. Create receptive insight within us on a DNA level. And then use your word and your spirit to nudge us closer to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last weekend, there was yet another fire that broke out in the Boulder County area. This is called the NCAR fire because it's next to the National Center of uh, atmospheric research. And what it did is it caused over 20,000 people to evacuate their homes, about 9,000 homes, because these fires came within 1,000 feet of people's homes in the Boulder County. And so people are displaced once again. I tell you this because we understand this about fire, that fire is not bad, it's, it's dangerous. And that fire needs to be handled with care. And that fire can destroy Fire can be bad, but it can also be really good. It can warm our food. It can warm our bodies. But it is dangerous, and it needs to be handled with care. What James is wanting us to understand is that money is not bad. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is dangerous, and it must be handled with care. And that's what he's saying here in these few short verses. Let's look at them together. Verse 1, come now. We look... Last week at verse 13 of chapter 4, this language here, this come now language is really, we could say, come on, man. Come on. Do you really not get it? Are you not paying attention? Do you not understand? He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James is not wanting us to do is disconnect this chapter, chapter 5, from chapter 4. Too often what we do in our own personal time is we use these chapter breaks and these verse breaks to separate what's going on. James is not doing that. James is flowing straight from the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5. This original letter was read like a letter to the different churches. And it would have been read straight through. This isn't an abrupt turn to go left or to go right. It's not like that game we played when we were kids when we would sit in the back seat and our Parents would take corners, and as they turned left, we would kind of lean into our siblings, kind of crushing them, or, or lean over to the other direction, or lean back when our parents stopped. That's not what James is doing. He's not making these abrupt left and right turns. Constantly what he's doing is he's trying to show us the mountaintop. He's trying to show us the majesty, the majestic of God, and also make it mundane, make it practical. He's not just talking about this nebulous idea. He's hitting the ground running, and that's what he's doing here today as well. And so really he's talking to a very specific group of people. So you can write this down. This is a warning to the wickedly wealthy. 
this is a warning from James, this pastor, to the churches. But it's specifically to the wickedly wealthy. This is interesting as we think about this. This letter was read in the churches, the Jewish people. They were dispersed because of persecution. Now these people who had homes, they had land, they had a life, were all dispersed, were all separated out. And this letter would have been read to these different churches, these Christ followers inside the church. And so why is James all of a sudden, seemingly in an abrupt way, all of a sudden having this warning to the wickedly wealthy? Well, there's a couple reasons. The church was continually growing. There were people who were in the churches who were not followers of Jesus yet, that they associated themselves with a church, but they were not followers of Jesus. But this is a warning to those who are using their wealth in a wicked way, that they've gained their wealth in a wicked way. And so what we don't see here in this short set of scriptures, these six verses, is we don't see James addressing the congregation as brothers and sisters. He's not addressing them as followers of Jesus. And we don't see that in this passage. What we do see is the stark warning to the wicked and those who have become wealthy from this. Come on, man. He says, come now. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's talking specifically to those who are going to last into eternity but are not going to be with Jesus Christ. They've never laid their life down at the foot of the cross. They've never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He's speaking to them and saying that you should cry. You should howl. You have miseries that are coming in your direction. I remember when my wife, Ginger, and I, we were first dating. Her grandmother came into town, and she was an event coordinator. And uh, she had an event at the Denver Zoo. And I remember meeting Grandma Eve for the first time. And it was a hot day at the zoo that day. So we sat underneath an umbrella at a picnic table for like two hours. And she told me story after story after story of her sons and her grandkids. And I'll never forget, she said something to me about wealth and and talking about this exact subject. She said, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearst. You can never take anything with you in this life, that your life is going to come to an end and you're not taking anything with you. And that's what James is wanting us to understand. That is the warning that he's speaking about in this moment. Verse 2, he says, your riches have rotted. And if you're wondering if you're rich, I did a little bit of research this week and it said that the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world, this is globally, make $34,000 or more a year. If you make $17,000 or more in a year, you're in the top 2% of the wealth in the world. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. And what he's saying here is he's speaking directly into people that are wealthy. And it's very few people that would have the opportunity to become wealthy and say, no, thank you, that doesn't interest me at all. It's been said that it'd be better to be poor and happy than wealthy and miserable. But I think what we do is we say, well, can't I be moderately wealthy and just a little bit moody? (laughs) Right? And what he's speaking to are, are the wealthy in this world. And what he's trying to get us to understand is that money is just a tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. And we understand this when it comes to our phones. That our phone is neither good nor bad, but it can be used to destroy lives or to build lives up. 
I was having this conversation with our oldest daughter, she's 11, and most of her friends have phones now, and so she's wondering why she can't have a phone. And so I'm talking to her about it and why we're not getting her a phone, and if we do, it's gonna be very, very limited, right? And I told her that I would rather give you a loaded gun and let you walk around with that than have, give you access to the internet. And I see a lot of heads shaking, like, yeah, we totally get this. And I told her that you see things on the internet that you'll never unsee. You'll hear things on the internet that you'll never be able to unhear. And so there's no way I'm giving you a phone. James is trying to get us to understand this about money. He's saying that money is very dangerous and that need to, we need to be careful with how we use money, how we view money. Jesus, he agrees with James in this. There is a story in Mark 10 where this rich, young ruler comes to Jesus. He seemingly has everything, everything that we see on social media, everything that we see on TV, everything that most people are just grasping for. He has his youth, he's young, he's wealthy, he's made a good living, he has power, he has position, he has authority. And he comes running up, sliding up on his knees to Jesus and says, good teacher, how can I enter the kingdom of God? And he asks the great question, the most important question you could ask. And Jesus turns to him and says, hey, keep the Ten Commandments. And in great pride, he says, I have kept them perfectly since my youth. And Jesus says, there's one thing that you lack. Go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. We'll see this here on the screen for you. It's Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus showed love to him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But he, the rich young ruler, was deeply dismayed by these words and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. And then Jesus says something absolutely astonishing in this moment. He tells the disciples after this that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples and all of us should be absolutely shocked. They're like, well, then who can enter the kingdom of God? And what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that wealthy, the wealth that we have, the money that we have, it's not bad. It's not good. It's a tool to be used. It's a tool to be used for the kingdom. But just like fire, just like our phones, it needs to be handled with care. It needs to be handled and understand that it is absolutely dangerous. And we need to be careful how we use our money. Write this down. Riches rot and run. Riches rot and run. That's what he's saying here in verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. That they don't last. And that what happens when we put our trust in our wealth is we've been self-deceived. The very definition of being self-deceived is you don't know that you're actually deceived. You don't know the deception and the wrong and the road that you've gone down. You can't see it clearly. You need other people in your life to help you out. You need other people to step in and show you where you've stepped off the path. Verse 3 goes on. He says, your gold and your silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And what he's saying here is not to put your wealth, your money, what you have, what you own as first place. Now, technically, and when I say technically, our middle daughter, Naomi, every time she tells a story these days, she says, well, now technically, Dad, and she puts up these air quotes, so technically gold and silver does not corrode. 
but it doesn't last into eternity. And that's what James wants us to understand. That's what God's speaking to all of us. Write this down. The wicked make gold their God. Apprentices of Jesus make God their gold. The wicked make gold their God, but apprentices of Jesus make God their gold. And really what he's trying to get us to understand here is what place does wealth have in our life. And what we believe as the church, as ambassadors of God, as followers of Jesus, as apprentices of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus holds that place, the absolute satisfaction to my soul, that I'm enamored with who Jesus is, with the person of Christ and, and the work that he did. And there's nothing in my life that can be held in comparison to that because I have joy and peace and comfort. I understand kindness and mercy and grace because Christ is my satisfaction. And that's how we view our Lord and our Savior, Jesus, in our life, that we're fully enamored by him. We're fully satisfied by Christ and Christ alone. But can we be real? Can we be honest? Is there not a time in all of our lives that we focus more on the gift than we do the giver? Are there not times in all of our lives than the things that we have and what we own actually seems to display more satisfaction in our heart and in our minds than Jesus, our Lord and Savior? Can we not just be honest at times that there are things that I have that I give the highest and the utmost place in my life? I mean, honestly, we talk about it, my house, my land, my boat, my wife, my kids, and all of a sudden our heart is shifting and changing. I think it's really difficult when we talk about our kids too. We have three beautiful, amazing kids. And if I'm not careful those kids can take a higher place in my life and bring more satisfaction on a soul, DNA, heart level than Christ and Christ alone. Especially when at our son's birthday party, our middle daughter decides to do the splits on the ice and there's somebody else who rolls over her finger with an ice skate and now we're wrapping up her finger and taking her to urgent care. And I'm struggling with thoughts of God, save her finger. Or should it be, God, if you want my daughter to go through the rest of her life with only nine digits, then so be it. If that's for your glory and for the utmost and for the absolute best. And I think so often in our life, what we do is we have wealth, we have power, we have position, we have things, we have people in our lives. And Jesus is not the satisfaction for our soul. So what do we do in those moments? And we repent as followers of Jesus when we identify that we've placed something else like money in the place that only God should have in our hearts and our souls, then we repent. What's interesting about these six verses is James never tells these people to repent. He never says brothers, he never says sisters, and he never calls them into repentance. But what he is trying to get us to understand and write this down is that all treasure outside of Jesus is worthless. Verse 3, he said, you laid up treasure in the last days. What he's saying here is the last days. The last days were ushered in when Jesus was born, when he lived, he died, and he rose again on the third day. The last days were ushered in in that moment. And our Christ, our King, is returning on the last day. So what he's saying in this is as we live our life, we should be living our life as if Jesus Christ is our sole satisfaction. 
to our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that there should be nothing else that takes that place, and that any treasure in our life outside of Jesus is absolutely worthless. <laughs> and what's interesting about this is the stress and the anxiety and the fear that all of the wealth actually creates in our life. It's interesting to me when I talk with people and I have the opportunity every week to sit down across the table, usually at a coffee shop, sometimes it's lunch, and talk to somebody about anxiety, about stress, and about fear. And the interesting thing about this is everything that we're gathering, everything that we're accumulating is just sifting through our fingers and we're trying to hold on to it. It's a burden to gain wealth. It creates anxiety to hold on to it and fear that we're going to lose it. And so the anxiety, the stress, the fear that we have in our life is from the things that God has given us. And then we take the, the gift and we place it above the giver. And then now we have stress and anxiety and fear in our life because we're just trying to hold on to what we have now. I'll prove it to you. How many of you, the first car that you were given at 16 years old was an absolute junker? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you, right? I can tell you that I was given a 1986 gold Buick Skylark. And I can tell you this too that there's no way I was parking at seven miles from the front of the grocery store so that nobody would ding the door, right? It had a lot of dings on it, had a lot of dents on it. But then as I've grown and I've made some more money and been able to purchase my own car, my cars have become nicer and nicer. And now when I go and park it, I look around and say, huh, is this a really good area or not? right, that all of a sudden we start to accumulate more and more and more, and the things that are actually causing the stress and the anxiety and the fear in our life is from the giver of all good things, the father of light. And yet we seem to want to hold on to them and to grab hold of them, and the very things that are causing stress and anxiety in our life are the very gifts that God gives us. And we should not allow those gifts to take the place that only Christ should have. And so it's interesting, and you can write this down, that death is the final mockery to materialism. That death is the final mockery to materialism. And what he's trying to do, and don't miss this, what he's doing is he is warning these rich landowners who are defrauding the people of God. This warning is to the wickedly wealthy, the people who are abusing and using the people of God. Verse 4, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. If you have the ability to circle, highlight, underline the Lord of hosts, it's important. We're getting insight into why. Why is James speaking to the church about the wicked, the wickedly wealthy and the wicked who own land and how they're treating God's people? They already know this, don't they? But God has stiff warnings all through the Old Testament about treating your employees poorly. On the screen for you will be Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 through 15. God says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. For he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. Jeremiah twenty two thirteen, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's service without pay, and he does not give him his wages. These are warnings against the wickedly wealthy, but we're starting to see why. Why is this pastor, why is this shepherd take this abrupt turn 
and start to speak to the people of God, people who love the Lord, about what the wicked is doing. Write this down. This is the key. This is to comfort and encourage the faithful so they do not envy a fortune. This is to comfort and encourage the faithful so they do not envy a fortune. This warning that's all the way through the Old Testament is the heart of God. And what God wants these people to know is that he hears their cries. That as they're wailing, as they're crying out, as they're being mistreated, as people are over them and abusing them, what we see is that God, the Lord of hosts, actually cares about them. Write this down. The Lord of hosts means defender of the weak, and he is coming back to right all wrong. This language, Lord of hosts, means defender of the weak, and he is coming back to right all wrongs. So often the rich oppress the poor because they don't think that anybody's going to care. So often the, the wealthy take advantage of those who have not because there's nobody who can stand up for them. There's nobody that can defend them. There's nobody who seemingly cares about them. And what James is warning about is that if we put our trust, our hope, and our wealth, and our finances, and our money, and we treat others wrongly, there is somebody who cares, and there is somebody who is defending the weak and the poor. And this warning is against us, against those who might be tempted to use our wealth. This is towards the wicked, those who don't know Christ, who might be tempted to stand and trust in their wealth. Because when we trust in our wealth and, and stand on what we have and our possessions, it takes us further away from God, and then we feel like we can get away with anything. Like, hypothetically, if you were one of the greatest actors over the last two decades, and you were in the front row of the Oscars, and hypothetically somebody started saying something bad about your wife, and you decided to get up, go over, and slap the person who was speaking, just hypothetically. But what I'm saying is that sometimes when we put our trust in our wealth and when we put our hope in what we have, we can forget about those who are being mistreated. But God is the defender of the weak. God is the one who's stepping in. And so this is fantastic news for us as believers. And really, he's issuing a warning to all of us, followers of Jesus, to not fall into this temptation. Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. What he's saying is that we should not live this life in self-gratification, but understanding that we're stewards of all that we have. All that we are as people and all that we have, we steward that from God, including our own kids. Now, I have no idea. I never grew up on a farm. I have no idea what it's like to fatten the calf for the slaughter, but I can only imagine what's going on. If you're a calf and you're living on a farm and you're being fed food every day and you're getting water every day and you're just getting fatter and fatter because somebody else is doing all the work for you, you have no idea that you're being fattened for the day of slaughter. This is a warning to those who are continually living comfortably in this life gratifying every selfish need, every selfish desire that we have, and using the wealth and stepping on the heads of other people to do this. And so this is a warning. But there's good news here, and write this down. This is to protect and provoke. This is to protect the follower of Christ from falling into this temptation, and this is to provoke us to a fresh generosity. 
God's mercy here in this passage is he's keeping us from falling into this temptation. This is God's absolute mercy to the church, to the followers of Jesus. That his mercy is protecting us from going this direction. And it should provoke us into new generosities. This teaching is not to make you feel guilty for the Starbucks that you bought on the way in, for the birthday gifts that you received over the last week, for the laptop that you're going to buy, the vacation that you're going to go on. That's not what this is about. This is to protect us from using our wealth in an ungodly way to push down the people around us so that we can get ahead. And it should protect us from falling into this pitfall, especially if we are employers and we have employees that we should be treating them in a God-honoring way. And it should provoke us into fresh generosity. The issue is not being rich. All through the Bible, we see rich people. There's nothing wrong with being rich. Abraham, we see Joseph, we see David, we see uh, his son uh, Solomon, probably the richest person on the planet. We see a difference between Abraham and Lot, though. Abraham's character is good, and he uses his wealth for God's glory. Lot, his nephew, uses his wealth to get more of what he wants to gratify himself. This should protect us from doing this, and it should provoke us into fresh generosity. R.G. Letourneau, his life was marked by God. He came to be a Christ follower later in life, and all of a sudden he realized that everything that he had been given over his entire life was from God. And so he started tithing, and he started at 10% because that's what he told, was told what a tithe was. And so he gave 10%, and then the next year he gave 11%. And then the year after that he gave 12%. And it's said of his life that by the time he died, he was actually giving 90% of his wealth to God and God's kingdom and living on 10%. He's quoted as saying, well, I just kept shoveling out money towards God, but God kept shoveling it back towards me. And God has a bigger shovel than I do. And that what we want to do is we want to have a, a fresh generosity. That this should protect us from living like this and we should have fresh generosity. We should be provoked to give. Verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Now, commentators who are much smarter than me go back and forth on what this is. But as we transition into communion, which we're going to take together here, I think we should read this with fresh eyes says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. I'm not sure how we can read this without thinking of the righteous person. How we can read this without thinking of the, our Lord Jesus Christ. And what it's saying here is this sin that he's talking about in this passage murdered the righteous person. That your sin has murdered Christ. My sin condemned and murdered my Lord and my Savior. What he's saying is that all people have fallen short of the glory of God. And the sin that we have in our life, the lawless deeds that we do, the things that we go and go in our own direction, specifically here, taking advantage of other people, taking advantage of the poor, people who don't have as much as we do. That's what put Christ on the cross. That we condemned the righteous person. But it doesn't end there. It's, it's amazing. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. God is full of mercy and of grace. 
The Bible tells us that we all were born into sin. We all were born into this self-gratification. We're all born into wanting more. And then as we get more, we just want more of more. And that that's the direction that we go in our life. But there's a better way. It's the way of Jesus Christ. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the good news is, is he's not resisting you. He's actually stepping near to you. He's actually coming into your life. If you've never laid your life down at the foot of the cross, Jesus has been pursuing you your entire life. He's wooing you into the kingdom because he understands the greatest thing for your life. He actually placed your purpose in your heart and he's been wooing you and drawing that out of you so that you can live a life that's different from what the world says is going to give you what you need. It's going to give you less gratification to grab hold of the things that you can hold on to. And he's saying, I have a much better way. The way, the truth, and the life. The way of Jesus plus the truth of Jesus equals the life of Jesus. And the good news in this, it's not about you trying to grab it on your own. It's not about you trying harder. It's not about you doing better. It's just through submission. There are many, many people who believe that Jesus Christ is a real person that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross, and that he actually rose again, who have never actually submitted their lives to Christ. God's mercy, God's grace continues to overflow into our lives. And what he's inviting us into is a life that's greater than anything we could imagine without him, greater than any amount of money that we could ever make, greater than any satisfaction that this world could ever give. And he's saying, come and get away with me. And I will show you the unforced rhythms of grace. And the way that we do that is through prayer. So what I want to do is if you're here and you've never actually submitted your life to Christ, you believe that he's real. Maybe you don't, but God's been speaking to your heart this entire message, drawing you closer to him. And you're ready to submit your life, your entire life to him as much as you know what that means in this moment. I want to give everybody in here an opportunity to do that. So would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes with me? And if you're here and you know without a shadow of a doubt that you've never actually submitted your life to Jesus Christ and you want to invite him to be your king and your Lord in this moment, then I invite you to pray along with me. There's nothing special about the words that I'm going to say. It really is a prayer from your heart to our God, our Lord, and our king. So say something along these words. God in heaven. I know that I've tried to live this life according to my way. I know that I've tried to grab everything that I possibly can on my own. And right now, I submit my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength to you. In this moment, I invite you to be my king and my Lord. I believe that you are the king and that you are the Lord, but in this moment, I submit my life, all that I have, all that I am, to you. And I invite you to come in, work on the inside of me, changing my desires away from my own selfish desires to your desires, and to work your good in and through me by the power of your spirit. I submit now in this moment. Thank you. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to walk with you. Father, we know that we start this process through prayer and submission. So, Father, I pray for any of those who just prayed to receive your Son as their Lord and Savior for the first time, that we would be able to walk with them, 
to work with them and to continue to show them your rhythm of grace from the experience that we've had with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you did pray that for the first time, we'd love to hear from you. You can fill it out on the, on the connection card, let somebody here know. Uh, but definitely, I'll be here right after service. If you just prayed for the first time to receive Christ, I would love to have a conversation with you. But now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, what do we do with a message like this? I think the first thing that we can do is we can examine our wealth. Write that down. Examine your wealth. As we hear a message like this, what does this actually mean in our lives? Is that we should examine the wealth that we have in our lives. And what are our purchases motivated by? Is it for self-gratification or is it for the king of kings and for his kingdom? Now remember, this isn't to create any kind of condemnation, but we should have a kingdom-minded budget. So is your budget, and actually, if you don't have a budget, that's something that you can do that's very practical, is create a budget of all the money that's coming in and where it's going, and you should have a kingdom-minded budget. And a question that you can ask in this is, what are the things that I can give away? What is it that I can give? Maybe a better question is, what are the things that I can't give away? Maybe either rightly or wrongly. Maybe it's something that is so dear to you, a possession that you have, that you feel like you could never give that up. That if God took that from you, that life might end as you know it. Or maybe it's something that you shouldn't give up, like your kids. God gave our kids to us specifically so that we could steward their lives so they understand who Christ is, that God loves them, and what it means to be obedient to Jesus Christ. So what is it in your life that you should be giving away, and what is it that you shouldn't give away that God has made you a steward of? And then in that, when we hear truth and we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, what we do as followers of Jesus is repent. So maybe you've been convicted here this morning of something that you have, that you're holding on to, that you've placed into the place that only God should have in your life, and you need to repent and ask for forgiveness in that, then do that today. The next step is to stop hoarding and start helping. We need to stop holding on to things in our life, in our grasp, and start helping other people. What should be spurred from a sermon like this and from God's word is a fresh generosity. Who can you surprise this week in serving them? One of the things that our family's been doing because of our oldest daughter has a huge heart for homeless people and our neighbor is that we make these bags for homeless people. When they're standing there and asking for money, we hand them this huge Ziploc bag that has food and water and when it's cold outside, we give them scarves and gloves and deodorant and bars of soap and things that they need. And we surprise them with fresh generosity. What is it this week, who is it that you can surprise with fresh generosity? And then with that, I'd be remiss not to say that if you are an employer, you have employees, you're an owner, you're a boss, you're a manager, then we should be generous in the way that we lead people. Maybe you have clients, maybe you have people in your life, and that we should, in the way that we treat them, treat them as God treats us and honor them. This message flows perfectly into taking communion together. This is a representation of our God and his mercy. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is coming to the very last moments of his life. And he stands up as the disciples are expecting to take Passover and complete Passover. And he stops in that moment and he institutes at that time what we call the Lord's Supper. 
The Lord's Supper isn't just a, some language that we came up with. Paul says this language in 1 Corinthians as he's describing what Jesus says here. But the Lord's Supper is something that we do in a very particular way as followers of Christ. If you're here and you know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, we welcome you to take communion with us. If you're here and you haven't done that yet, we're glad that you're here. We would love for you to watch this take place. It's good for you to see this. We'll talk more about this on Good Friday. But part of taking communion is the proclamation, is the demonstration in showing those around us what it looks like to celebrate the Lord's death. But this is what Jesus says. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a couple things that we do as we're taking communion. It's physical. There's a physical action that we do. There's mental assent that we do, and there's something spiritual that's going on. The physical action is that we're actually eating and we're drinking. There is a cracker and there is juice or wine. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say what kind of cracker you have to use. Just so you know, all the crackers that we use are gluten-free for any of you that need that. And you can use any fruit from the vine. We tend to use juice here. And so there is something physical. You're ingesting the bread and you're ingesting the juice. There's something mental that needs to take place too. You're not dreaming. Your mind's not wandering. You're not off into what I'm going to have for lunch. You have to focus because it is lunchtime right now. You have to focus your mind back on events that we're getting ready to celebrate in two weeks. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we constantly and continually during this time are remembering and we're reaching backwards to what Jesus Christ did for us. We're directing our mind. So we're eating, we're drinking, and we're directing our mind to be very focused. But then the reason why this is for believers is because there's something very spiritual that happens here too. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is saying that there is a, a koinonia that takes place as we take communion. There's a, there's a fellowship that we're actually participating in something that took place thousands of years ago. We're actually reaching back mentally, but we're participating in what Jesus Christ did for us. The greatest act of mercy the world has ever seen. Our God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to have his body beaten, his blood shed, and die on a cross and rise again so that we could have life and life to the fullest. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward right now. And they're going to come up here. We're going to pray over the elements as they come up here. And then what you're going to receive is you're going to receive the bread and you're going to receive the cup. And as you receive that, you're going to spend time doing exactly what we just said. You're going to be directing your mind back to the cross. You're going to be directing your mind back to the events that took place thousands of years ago that we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks. And you're going to remember the mercy that Christ gave, the grace that he instituted in our life so that we could have the life that we have right now. So we participate in that. We bring that forward. And that's the celebration. Because we have life. And we have life to the fullest because of what Jesus did. And what that looks like in our actual lives. It's not just theology. It's not just theoretical. It's practical. And that's what James wants us to understand. That as we participate with Christ in this, his mercy and his grace is on display in our lives. So you're going to get the cup. 
you're going to get two cups. They're going to be stacked together as you're pulling them apart. Don't spill the juice. But in your own time, as you remember what Christ did, if you need to ask for forgiveness for anything that's going on in your life, do that. And then as you're taking the elements, as you're putting the bread in your mouth and you're crushing the cracker between your teeth, remember that Christ's body was crushed for our iniquities. And then as you ingest the juice, remember that his blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, was shed to cover our sins so that we could have life and life to the fullest. So we're going to take that in your own time, and then the worship team is going to start playing. And then because of us remembering what Christ did, what that means here, and the foretaste of the future that we have because our king is coming back, we're going to stand together and we're going to sing like we never have before. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son. We thank you for what you've done in our hearts and in our lives. Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for the opportunity to take this supper that nourishes our soul. Father, in these moments, remind us of what you're speaking into our lives. Help us to remember the sacrifice that your son gave and the work that he did and how he finished the work on the cross. Father, help us to remember your body that was given for us and your blood that was shed so that we could have life. Then, Father, as we remember, as we participate with you in this, allow your grace and your mercy to flood our hearts and our minds so that we can stand as one body, sing one song, sing in one voice to you, our one God. In Jesus' name.